Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. But before we jump in, I'm always keen to hear from our listeners. You can send me your thoughts on the show at jacob at journalism.co.uk. Right, let's get into it. This is the final episode in a mini-series that talks about innovation in local news. Increasingly, we're hearing that the US is a great source of inspiration for UK newsrooms especially when it comes to news gathering processes, revenue models, audience engagement, and so on. In each episode, I speak to US local newsrooms about something smart or experimental that they're doing in an effort to transfer those lessons and learnings across anywhere. Today, we round off the series by talking about solutions journalism. My guest is Kelly Regan, the editorial director of Next City, a non-profit news organisation based in Philadelphia. It's an interesting one because Next City focuses on national and international topics, but applies them to a city level. Since starting out as a print publication in 2003, their approach is to look at what is working in one city and how to make it work in the next city. It's solutions journalism, not just where they are in Philadelphia, but across other cities in America. There's lots of practical tips coming up on how to make it work, even across difficult topics like climate change and gentrification. From webinars to deadlines, there are a number of useful models here that you can add into your newsroom to get the ball moving with solutions journalism in your local area. Don't go anywhere, that's all coming up after this. Just a quick one from me. You can hear more from today's guest, Kelly Regan, at our upcoming digital journalism conference, News Rewired. She's speaking on a panel about ingraining a solutions mindset in your newsroom. If you're after more tips on how to roll out solutions journalism wherever you are. That event takes place from the 19th of October and we have four days of expert panels and workshops to also look forward to. Head over to newsrewired.com to grab your ticket today and we'll see you there. Kelly, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Can you give our listeners a snapshot of your working situation at the moment? Oh, yeah. You know, we're all working remotely. Um, We do go into the office one by one occasionally. But um, because we're a website, because all of our tools are, um, you know, basically online that that allow us to do our jobs, we're able to um, work quite effectively together. Um, We already have a a sort of disparate newsroom because there is a handful of us based in Philadelphia, but we have people who are based in Washington, D.C. and New York City as well. So um, so we're used to connecting virtually, whether it's through Zoom or Google Meet or um, on Slack. So, yeah, so we're we're making it work. And, and what's the size of the outfit in total? Oh, there's only eight of us. Right. Um, so, um, you know, we have, um, you know, folks doing fundraising and there's um, three of us in the editorial department. So <laughs> between the three of us, we have one staff writer, our senior economics correspondent, Oscar Perriabello, and then um, me and our senior editor, Rachel Kaufman. So between the three of us, we write stories, we edit stories, and we assign stories out to a stable of freelance writers that we work with. Yeah. So um, in terms of your editorial direction, your editorial focus, how does that differ compared to what else is available to readers locally? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, we're a national and international publication. So although we are based in Philly we, and we do love our hometown and we do write about it, we're not exclusively um, concerned with Philadelphia news. Um, really, I think the way that we are um, presenting the work that we do is that Next City was founded um, in 2003 as a print magazine. And, and we've kept to the ethos of the founding, which is three people who are not journalists decided that they did not want cities to be talked about as the source of problems. They wanted cities to be talked about as the source of solutions because they worked in areas like, you know, housing development and, and law. And they saw some really interesting things happening in cities. And so they decided to start this magazine to talk about what great developments were happening in cities. And we've really taken that and run with it for the past, um, you know, 17 years. And so unlike a lot of other news outlets, mainstream news outlets have to cover, you know, the bad news as well as the good news, right? Like they have to cover the things um, like climate change related weather events and political infighting and, and those kinds of things. But what we really like to do is we call it um, elevating and amplifying solutions for cities. So um, we practice solutions journalism. Um, we are proud members of the Solutions Journalism Network, um, which is an international organization. We contribute stories. We're the third most prolific contributor to the Solutions Journalism Tracker um, behind The Guardian and The New York Times. So we're a small outfit, but we, um, we punch above our weight. That's not bad company, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, we don't cover stories unless it feels like it's a it's an idea that could be spread. And and the concept of next city is that we could be spreading it from one city to the next city. Right. So what we talk about is um, because we have the ability to focus exclusively on solutions, um, you know, we can elevate those solutions for our audience. And our audience is really um, what we call urbanist practitioners, people who work in fields like um, public policy and community activism and housing development and, um, you know, financial services and, you um, people who are transportation planners and landscape architects and, and people who are just concerned about working in cities and looking for ideas about how to make cities better for everyone. Our particular brand of solutions journalism is really to say, you know, here is an idea that somebody had in their community or in their city, and um, it's working on a very small scale. Here's how it's working. Here's why they came up with the idea. Um, and by giving that a national and international platform, you're inspiring people who are at work in other cities to perhaps take that idea and run with it or um, retrofit that idea for their own particular community needs. When we think about solutions journalism, I suppose it's easy for our minds to go to this place of rainbows and unicorns, safe or virtuous topics, and maybe even people looking for publicity. In fact, that's the opposite of what you'll see on Next City. On their website, there is all manner of stories, from how Minneapolis is rethinking its water public fountains, to Rhode Island being the first to introduce a safe injection law, to improving access to rape kits at a Wisconsin university. As Kelly tells me, while audiences come to solutions journalism for respite, for relief, 
from the dominance of negativity they find elsewhere in the media, they also expect tougher topics to be tackled. When all people hear about is bad news, um, it actually disengages them from um, their communities. They get numb to the realities that they're facing and it makes them not want to consume news, right? To overuse the word solution, the solution there is not to like only give them good news and only tell the happy stories because most of these solutions are grounded in very uncomfortable realities. You know, um, the realities of structural racism, the realities of institutionalized white supremacy, especially in the United States, but in many countries of the world that have systematically and through government programs disinvested large swaths of the population um, and denied them the opportunity to live a full and healthy and safe life. The idea is that you tell people what is working Right. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it is really hard. You know, we're part of a journalism collective in Philadelphia right now um, called Resolve Philly, and they practice solutions journalism. And they're doing a project right now um, that's called The Toll. And it's about the high cost of gun violence and how gun violence spreads out. And it's not just a problem in for a particular family in a particular community it has economic repercussions it has repercussions with you know mental trauma and um social determinants of health like there the tentacles reach out everywhere that is a very hard topic to find solutions about because it's a difficult story and there aren't a lot of good solutions out there but the work is still worth doing and even when you have an idea for a solution, but then you're highlighting some significant limitations that are preventing that solution from being effective. Perhaps you can bring some pressure to bear on changing how that is approached. So I would say that it's not about being holier than thou um, in the coverage. It's about saying like, don't despair. Um, you know, you might look around and you might see that the world is a big dumpster fire right now, <laughs> like quite literally and perhaps figuratively, but um, but there are people who are working hard to make their part of the world a little bit better. And we we as Next City take great inspiration from that. And we believe in holding up that work as an example of not believing that the relentless negativity is the sum total of the story. Can you give me sort of a general uh, day in the office, as it were, how a story is sort of taken from uh, conception through to publication? Sure. You know, um, because we're a nonprofit news organization, a lot of our funding comes from grants. Um, so we have funding organizations that provide financial support for the work that we do. We also um, raise money through membership events and, you know, solicit donations. We also sell advertising for the site. So at any given point, we have a number of grant relationships that are underwritten. So it's not um, sponsored advertorial content, but it's editorial content that is supported by these, these granting organizations. And so, um, for example, we have a long-running relationship with the Kresge Foundation, which is based in Detroit. And for them, we cover issues of equitable creative placemaking. Um, so we have a series that's called For Whom, By Whom, and it's about how communities 
are bringing their own voices to bear in creative placemaking projects that make their um, neighborhoods or their communities better. And so we're always looking to assign stories and we're always having in the back of our mind that we are there are certain topics that we need to be covering to fulfill these grant relationships, right? So it's always a mix of trying to figure out, okay, how many stories this week do we need to cover what particular subject areas? So, you know, that's an ongoing conversation in terms of assigning stories several weeks out. But at any given point, we're running two to three original stories a day. Um, we also work with several interns um, at various points throughout the year. So they might be writing shorter stories that are kind of updates to solutions that we've run previously, um, you know, just kind of checking in on the solution that might have been written about, you know, a year ago. Um, and, and yeah, it's just kind of putting that mix together based on making sure we're covering, you know, our various sectors in a equitable way that we're covering our funding relationships and that, um, you know, we, we have enough fresh content for the site. That sounds like a, a, a nuts amounts to do for a, an editorial team of three. I might put that out there. That's, that's, <laughs> loads of, that's loads of work, but it's all it's all awesome. Typically, how long does a solutions journalism story take to take to run? Uh, you know, the majority of the stories that we run are between um, 800 to 1200 words. And so um, I would say the writing of the story, you know, can be once we have a story idea nailed down and we want, you know, we hire someone to do it or we have one of our contracted writers, you know, push ahead with it. The reporting, you know, we can get it done um, in a week, um, you know, and that involves the reporting and the writing and the the kind of back and forth of the editing. You know, sometimes if it's a deeper dive, we do run features that are um, roughly 3000 words that take a, a deeper or broader look at um, some of these issues, maybe provide the historical angle, look at how solutions are happening in multiple cities, like one particular solution is playing out in multiple cities. That takes a little bit longer. I would say that takes like, you know, maybe three weeks to a month, um, maybe longer, just depending on tracking down sources. And you know, all of that, like how responsive people are to your requests for interviews, right? So um, yeah, so I think that's that's about it. I mean, I think the the feedback that we've heard from our longtime writers and reporters who practice solutions journalism is that it is a lot more labor intensive than just kind of, you know, going to a city council meeting and and then writing a story about a bill that's up for consideration. You know, it involves a kind of deeper understanding of the issues that are at play so you can understand, you know, whether a solution is working or not. Um, it involves digging into the data, you know, um, finding ideas um, through data. Sometimes data points you to the solution. Um, and it involves, you know, knowing what sources to talk to to get the right insight. And so what our best solutions writers have told us is that, you know, a lot of times the arc of a reporting on a story is months long because you have a kernel of an idea in your head and then you put a pin in it and you think, oh, um, well, this is just starting. I'm going to check back on it in six months and see whether it's effective or, you know, oh, I've been seeing a couple of stories about this particular innovation, such as, um, you know, we did a story recently about a startup that's 
trying to do battery swaps for electric vehicles so that instead of waiting to charge an electric vehicle in a city, you could pull into a station and swap out a battery, which would allow drivers of ride-sharing vehicles for, you know, companies like Uber and Lyft to not have any downtime while they're, you know, waiting for their EVs to charge. So, you know, it's like those kinds of things. Um, once you get the story idea in place, it moves relatively quickly. But I think developing the story and getting it to a good place is really um, where the heavy lift is in solutions journalism. Naturally, the question is, what happens if a, a solution isn't mature enough? Or in fact, if it doesn't pan out at all, what happens then? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and this is maybe where we deviate a little bit from the, the traditional ethos of solutions journalism, which is um, that sometimes you're deep into reporting and you're realizing either, oh, the solution wasn't what I thought it was, or there's really not enough data to, um, to judge its effectiveness. Or sometimes like, wait, it actually doesn't really work. Or, you know, this was the promise of the solution and it hasn't panned out the way they thought. And and sometimes um, with solution journalism, I think the feeling is that a failed solution is not a solution journalism story. I feel like a failed solution is still a story worth writing about because for our audience, as I said, for these practitioners, um, reading about why something didn't work is just as inspiring and enlightening and, you know, perhaps engaging as writing about a story that did work. Because if it's an idea worth pursuing, then you want to figure out like, okay, it didn't work in this version. Maybe I'm going to be the one to try it again. And I'm going to make these changes and I'm going to try and address those issues. And see if it works then, you know, so it's, it's a laboratory. Like, I feel like we're participating in this kind of ongoing worldwide laboratory of experimentation with ideas um, for raising the bar for cities so that cities can really be responsive and equitable for, for all populations. Um, and, and most especially for communities that have been traditionally, you know, disinvested, marginalized, um, and that really um, have paid the price for structural racism and, and you know, kind of institutionalized um, attempts to um, deny them things like generational wealth. Next City's tagline is journalism that inspires equitable cities. And a typical story tracks how a solution is pitched versus how it actually unfolds. A good example where it applies this rigorous stance on solutions can be seen in its coverage of Opportunity Zones, an economic development tool designed to encourage people to invest in distressed areas in the United States. Its purpose is to spur economic growth and job creations in low-income communities while providing tax benefits to the investors. Next City has been tracking this topic since 2018, when senior economics correspondent Oscar Perry Abello first reported on the Trump tax bill, which passed and included this legislation. He laid out how the solution was intended to operate, and followed it up later that year, criticising the bill's lack of clarity on approved uses of the funds and the process for selecting investments. It actually prompted Bloomberg Businessweek to report that the programme which intended to benefit poor neighbourhoods, may end up benefiting luxury condo developers instead, or contribute to programmes that didn't need additional subsidies to move forward. 
Although there are some success stories to be found, Next City is generally skeptical that opportunity zones can say that investors make a meaningful contribution to greater equity in historically disinvested neighbourhoods of US cities. And here's one other great example from Kelly on how they apply rigour to solutions journalism. Well, we're about to um, publish a story this Monday um, in collaboration with um, a Memphis um, nonprofit news organization called MLK 50. Um, and the editor in chief there, Wendy Thomas is really wonderful. And I encourage everybody to check out the site. Um, they cover issues that are pretty local to Memphis, but her reporting that she herself writes and publishes also is really powerful. And this story is about a public housing project in South Memphis that was torn down and replaced with a mixed-use development. And the idea and the the promise of this concept was that it would help to lift up the whole neighborhood. Um, The assumptions were that it was going to bring in private investment in grocery stores and shops and and other things, um, you know, to economically develop the whole area. It would be the, the locus of a lot of development that would happen around it. They had caseworkers that were working with folks to provide jobs, to help them find jobs. So the idea was that it was going to be a driver of, you know, lifting everybody up, helping to find jobs. And it turns out it didn't really happen. It's happened, but with kind of mixed results. You know, they're having trouble finding folks to come in and live in the neighborhood with some of the like higher rent apartments they're having trouble filling. Um, The private investment did not materialize. The people that were interested in building a grocery store decided not to go ahead with the project. And a lot of the job placements that were done were in very low wage or minimum wage jobs that are not doing much in the U.S. The minimum wage is horrible (laughs) and it's not a living wage. Like the minimum wage is not a living wage. And so even now, um, there's been what we call the fight for 15 to, to get to $15 an hour as a minimum wage. That's been going on for, you know, more than six years now. If it had kept pace with the original fight for 15 um, from, you know, five, six years ago, the, the minimum wage now should be like 21 an hour. And I, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's somewhere around nine, um, $9 an hour, which is outrageous. So so here's an idea where like the assumptions that were inherent in this project that were intended to kind of lift, you know, to create these jobs, make things better, they haven't really materialized, you know. Um, And what are the lessons that can be gleaned from that? You know, what are the insights that you take away from this? You know, and it's not that it didn't putting up this mixed use development didn't make the neighborhood better. It did in many ways, but it didn't deliver on all of the promises that it was supposed to. That's a super example. And I imagine like the collaborative nature of this piece, working with those folks in Memphis really probably helps that piece come together. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and what, what we are benefiting from is, is Wendy Thomas's um, and her, her local team's expertise in that area. You know, what is it about this neighborhood that's so important? And, um, and 
her team was on the ground. They were taking the photos. They were interviewing the residents of the houses. They were interviewing uh, of the new development. They were interviewing the residents, the former residents of the public housing project about, you know, what it was like then, what it was like now. Um, so yeah, that's an example where I feel like it's still really a story worth telling because especially the question of affordable housing is such a universal one, right? It's a universal one everywhere. How do you... Um, improve neighborhoods, like increase development without causing gentrification, right? How do you still keep it affordable for people who um, have been living there for many years? And so much of it is predicated upon the capitalist notions of like attracting private investment. And that doesn't always happen. You know, it doesn't always happen. And private investment really is a leading driver of gentrification. So it's just finding that balance, you know, and, and engaging with these questions um, time and again to really understand where is this working? And, and if it's not working, then what's the alternative? Here's a useful model that I want to leave you with that you could try for yourself. Webinars. We've all gotten used to them during the pandemic, but since autumn 2018, Next City has been doing webinars as a way to go into more detail on solutions journalism, because 800 words just doesn't always give you the scope to do that. It's a deeper dive on stories that have really captured people's imagination and warrants a more forensic look. It's offered publicly as a one hour Zoom session two or three times a month on a pay what you wish model. Just like the rest of Next City's content, they do not want to limit access by forcing people to pay. Hosting duties are rotated between Kelly, her executive director Lucas Grinley, and the aforementioned senior economics correspondent Oscar Perry Abello. And it's quite simple, really. A 20-30 minute presentation, plus moderator and audience questions about someone with a novel idea. And they go into why they came up with it, how they did it, problems in trying to make it work, how it's funded, how it's going, potential changes they might look to implement moving forward, and so on. And it has proved to be one of the best ways to monetize and sustain engagement around Next City's content. It's been hugely successful for us. Um, you know, people who can afford to pay will pay. These webinars will have um, anywhere from 50 to 500 guests. And, um, you know, we, our goal for raising money is to raise, you know, maybe a little over $1,000 per webinar. And we've exceeded that goal in all but a handful of instances. So, you know, we're finishing our third year of doing webinars. Last year, we, given the pivot because of the pandemic, it actually, a lot of people jumped on that bandwagon, you know, but we had great experience doing that. And we did a virtual event at the end of the year called Solutions of the Year, where we highlighted, we had panel, a series of panel discussions over three days, that um, two panel discussions a day that went into some of the solutions that we named as our Solutions of the Year. And that was hugely successful for us. It raised um, an enormous amount of money. I don't remember how much exactly, but it was part of our end of the year fundraising campaign. And um, we paired it with a print magazine called the 20 Best Solutions of 2020. And um, it was great. Um, so, so that's proven to be a good fundraising vehicle for us. It drives engagement because the people who are coming and joining these webinars are super interested to really dig into the nitty gritty of these solutions with the people who actually made them happen. Um, so that's proven to be a great, um, 
like rounding out our content inventory in a in a really meaningful way. Super, super interesting. What would be your passing piece of advice to uh, someone working in a local newsroom anywhere in the world to sort of get the ball moving with solutions journalism, ingraining that culture of solutions? What would be your advice? I would say um, don't be afraid of the complexity of a story. You know, um, not all stories are easily told because there's a lot of dynamics at work. And sometimes embracing and leaning into the complexity gives you a much more meaningful story. Um, And I think that for people working in local newsrooms, I really just encourage you to get out into the community and to really just see what people are doing. Um, You know, I've found some great story ideas in Philadelphia just by talking to my neighbors, by just asking like, oh, that's interesting. Look, there's a community fridge right here outside the school near our house. Like, I wonder how that happened. And, you know, um, like doing some Googling, like talking to some people and suddenly there we are, like it's a story, Um, you know, because um, there are people who are doing really meaningful work, um, but they're not getting much publicity for it, you know? So those would be my two pieces of advice. As editorial director of Next City, what would you say is the top skill needed to do your job day to day? Let's see. Uh... <laughs> Suddenly my mind is a blank. Um, I would say uh, um, just uh, being able to master complex subjects quickly um, because we cover so many different types of issues. So I've I've gotten really good at Googling acronyms for things and... <laughs> You know, just to just to kind of get myself up to speed. Awesome. I uh, love that response. And one tip on, I don't know, uh, being better at uh, understanding more quickly complex topics. What do you really work on? What makes that what makes that easier? Yeah, um, I think getting various types of input, um, you know, because not you know, you might think that you're more of a reader, but sometimes listening to a podcast or watching a YouTube video or, um, you know, listening to an interview um, is just as helpful and just as um, instructive um, or even just having a conversation with someone and saying like, okay, so you work in affordable housing. Like, I want to know what does this mean? Like, what is the importance of, um, you know, inclusionary zoning and how does that um how does that play out in cities, you know, from your perspective as someone who does the work and quick conversations can really make a difference. Super advice. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast, sharing all your insights. It's been super interesting. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. Really great to talk to Kelly there and lots to take away from this one. Despite the fact that Next City aren't strictly local news, I think this one still has a lot of applications for solutions journalism in your local area. And the key one for me is collaboration, particularly if you're part of a national news brand with local titles dotted up and down the country. Are there other titles where you could work together on a particular topic, looking at what is working in one area and how it could work elsewhere, or why something that's supposed to be working isn't working? Same goes for independent titles. Are there other collaborators that you could strike up a working relationship with, not just for the expertise, but also for the practicalities involved? And then you start to get into conversations about process, specific stories, and then crucially, mindset. And that is what we will talk about next at our digital journalism conference, News Wired. 
That date again is the 19th of October, and there will also be four days of expert panels and workshops to look forward to. For the full agenda and tickets, punch in newsrewind.com. If you like what you heard today, the rest of this series on innovative US newsrooms, plus all our other episodes are on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Just search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for listening. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Until next time.